You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast for the Mech's community, where we talk about emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes with links to everything we mentioned in today's episode at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. This episode was first published on the 1st of February, 2016. Coming up in this edition, the challenges of designing intelligent surroundings with embedded digital experiences. We meet Patrizia Bertini, a Lego Serious Play facilitator and user researcher, and we have a user story all about a little face and a big screen. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of the Mex podcast. Uh, so, Alex, tell me a bit about what you've been working on recently. Well, so just the last few months, actually, I've, I've started another startup, and I'm uh, trying to help people uh, lead better lives and lead healthier lives by considering their nutritional choices. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm guessing we're going to hear more about that in future podcast episodes. Um, but perhaps you could tell everyone a little bit about what we are talking about for the theme in this edition. So, so today it's about uh, intelligent surroundings, looking at how we embed digital intelligence uh, into our physical surroundings. Um, so essentially what that means is, for example, how you can unlock doors with your smartphone or um, adjusting lighting according to, to your mood or the time of day, that sort of thing. And is that something which uh, is going to make a change to the way in which we think about user experience in the context of these kind of services and apps and products? Yes, I think it is. Um, at, at the moment or up until now, we've considered a lot of the time interfacing with technology through a two-dimensional slab, whether it is the screen of your PC or the screen of your mobile phone or tablet or whatever it happens to be. I think increasingly the idea that we interface with our context, our surroundings, uh, with three-dimensional gestures is something which is going to, I think, fundamentally change the way we think about things and, and think about how we uh, interact both with technology and our, our physical spaces. So I guess as this is our inaugural episode of Max Design Talk, um, perhaps it makes sense for us just to explain briefly the kind of format that we're trying out for this. So the idea is that Alex and I and any guests we have on in the future are going to pick one thing which relates to the theme of each show. Uh, and we're going to start each episode with a bit of a, a show and tell where we talk about whatever the thing is that we've found. It could be a user story, it could be a product, it could be uh, an emerging technology that we've spotted uh, and get into a bit of discussion about how that relates back to the theme that we have for that uh, episode, which in this case, we're talking about this idea of the embedded digital intelligence around us in, in physical surroundings. So did you manage to find something interesting for this episode, Alex? Yes, um, and in fact, it relates back to something I was uh, looking at last year. Um, one of the companies that I've been mentoring uh, is a company called NCube, and they've come up with a, re a really rather a clever uh, smart home hub. Now, in, in itself, it just looks like an admittedly rather nicely designed box, uh, but it is a box. Uh, and what it enables you to do is to better manage the various smart home technologies that you have 
because in and of themselves, all these different technologies have different ways of communicating, and uh, and, and and they don't interact very well together. They don't they don't behave like a like a good set of children. Yeah, that strikes me as being one of the underlying problems. As soon as you start bringing in a range of different technologies into a physical environment, be it the home or an office or, or a public space, um, is immediately you have that challenge of how you make all of the bits work together, often legacy technology or new things which emerge after you have installed it. So some way of managing that, I think, potentially becomes quite interesting. Um, I'm just looking at it now, actually, and one of the things which struck me about it is uh, this um, mention they make about it continuing to work offline. Is that something that you've talked to them about? Are you aware of how that component works? Because, of course, yeah, I think that's a big worry for a lot of users when they start looking at these kind of systems is whether or not there is a fallback option if the web connection goes down. Well, there, there there have been some some fairly famous instances that have lit up Twitter, for example, when when everyone's thermostat goes offline and, and and they're unable to either heat or cool their their, their home anymore, one one of the one of the great things is that because uh, it works just within the home, so long as there is some sort of current, it, it's a network that that is that is internal to to your own home. And and so one thing is yes, it will carry on working when you're offline. The other thing that comes from it, of course, is is that uh, you're not sharing data with a third party outside your home. Um, so if if you are concerned about your privacy, uh, sharing when you're at home, what lights you're using, how much energy you're consuming, all of these things, they, they in some way belong to you and, and that data isn't shared unless you want to share it. That's an interesting point. So it essentially sandboxes the data within the, the box itself and, and keeps it private to you unless you choose otherwise. That's pretty much right, yeah. Okay, well, I was looking as well to find something for this episode and the thing which caught my eye... Uh, actually has a similar sort of notion of having that fallback option in case the power does go down or or something um, happens which is is unexpected um, because it uses e-ink technology. Um, So take a guess at what something like a city uh, like Los Angeles might spend on its traffic signs, just its temporary traffic signs, not the ones which are actually, you know, big metal signs up all year round, but anytime they have a temporary traffic event, how much do you reckon a city like Los Angeles might spend on its temporary road signs each year? No idea. Is, is this just on, on the on the lighting electricity or, or, or on uh, the whole... Uh, shebang of bringing infrastructure to a particular point or just putting in temporary signs basically when something like the parking restrictions change for a a week or so on a particular street uh, you know the kind of things that you might put on a a temporary sort of notice oh let's say uh let's say a couple of hundred pounds a day no that's probably under underestimating it but let's say a couple of thousand a couple of thousand uh, Australian dollars a day, which which figures out at around seven hundred and fifty thousand. So about a million dollars, let's say, a day. Okay. Well, I, I probably would have been with you on that as well, actually. But I was um, having a look at this company called Visionect, um, which has done a project in Sydney, Australia, and they calculated that a city like Los Angeles in the states would be spending something like nine and a half million dollars a year just on temporary road signs. I don't know whether they pick Los Angeles because it is well known for its horrendous traffic, but that's by the by. It sounds like a a big chunk of money anyway. Um, So they have come up with this idea of solar-powered traffic signs, which can be updated using uh, 3G 
over the air and they use e-ink displays which have very good readability and can be backlit at night so they remain visible throughout the day and in theory take all of their power from solar which is stored with a backup battery as well and of course what it means because they're e-ink displays is that they can be changed and updated with information whenever they want Uh, and again another characteristic of e-ink is that if something goes wrong like the power goes down the e-ink display remains set how it was last um, changed to if you like how the, the text was last left on there even if the power goes down the same way that it would do on something like one of the, the kindle e-readers um, so they're trying this in sydney and australia and have been rolling it out and apparently having pretty good success with the the project and it, it struck me as an example perhaps of how we start to think about not just our home environments but also public spaces and city infrastructure as being something which is adaptable something which can be updated over the air uh, and and managed remotely yeah absolutely and and, and the other thing that strikes me about e-ink of course is that it's it's so readable and possibly much more so than than the displays that currently exist yeah i mean i think readability as a whole is an issue for um, traffic signs and particularly once you start looking at how you do this digitally. Uh, There's actually a project in New York which I came across uh, which was done at sort of a guerrilla level by um, one lady started it on her own, a lady called Nikki uh, Silenteng um, and she got so fed up with the uh, um, legibility or poor legibility of the traffic signs in New York. I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but I can entirely see where she's coming from there. I mean, it, it is a mess. You park up on a street somewhere and it really is not clear whether or not you're supposed to be there, how long you can remain there. Uh, and she came up with this um, template, if you like, for how you might redesign uh, these traffic signs um, and started at this kind of guerrilla level where she would go around and actually post up her signs next to the other ones as an alternative and she started getting in touch with local authorities about this and saying hey there must be a better way and it seems like she's essentially doing it now on an open source basis where she's put these templates out which can be used either for digital signage or for traditional signage uh, where councils around the world now are starting to trial this format so as to make it easier for people to understand what the parking restrictions are around a particular place. And, and so wh- where do you think this goes? I mean, obviously, we've got a, a number of, of uh, different players looking at driverless cars, and we already have uh, some fairly intelligent systems in, 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 in cars uh, that are well s- smart in the sense that they are internet connected in some way. Do you, do you think that's going to have a fairly quick impact in, in the way some of these things work? It raises quite an interesting point, I think, which is that the first generation of this stuff, I guess, has all been thought about in the context of how does a human typically uh, interacting through a smartphone with a piece of smart environment, be it something to do with the city, like you know, a traffic um, sign, or be it something in the home, how does that interaction chain work? You know, human through smart device to piece of smart architecture or smart home or whatever it is. Um, But as you say, I think we now perhaps need to start thinking in a broader context about that, of well, what happens when actually you've got smart autonomous entities within that going beyond what the humans themselves are doing to interact. So if it's a smart 
car of some kind coming up and trying to interact and understand what those parking signs mean uh, in the city or if it's uh, a device within the home um, trying to understand what the systems around it are talking about. I don't know if you recall actually from the last uh, MEX event where we had uh, a talk from Louisa Heinrich uh, who has been very interested in this area for a long time and was starting to look at some of the, well, I guess, quite funny when she was uh, describing them, but potentially quite serious situations that you could get into in these environments where you've got multiple smart devices all essentially in conflict with each other, trying to organize your life for you in the background and having very different views about what it is you particularly wanted your smart uh, environment to do for you at that time. Yes, I, I remember one of one of her comments being that you would have to pay your toaster to stop it printing ads onto your toast. It's a frightening prospect to, <laughs> to wake up to in the morning. I think she also had one as well about the idea that um, you have these systems now where you can um, have a sensor in your plant pots and it will determine whether or not they need watering. And then you have things like your coffee machine, which has got a temperature sensor in there to monitor the temperature of the milk and make sure it's not getting too warm. And then you have your blinds, which will change depending whether or not the sunshine is too bright that day. And she was talking about this scenario in which yeah, who ends up having the final say? Is it the plant which wants the light, which says to the blinds, actually, I'd like you to stay open today? Or is it the coffee machine, which says, no, you've got to close the blinds because that's going to help me keep the milk cool. And you end up with this essential sort of war zone in, in the house of all of these things conflicting with each other. Going back to to a system like the N-Cube system, which uh, hasn't yet got to that point of making uh, autonomous decisions, but you might get to a point where you need a, a system of that kind that can interact with lots of different devices and can set the decisions as to you know who 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 is right and who is wrong uh, in any given context yeah that role of the mediator i think becomes a very interesting one and how you start to build the context awareness um, to make those sort of decisions and do that effectively um, but one of the things again which came out of that event and i think this was from louisa's working group um, during the, that, that same event uh, was the idea of um a human override at any level in that system because we just can't guarantee that the context awareness is going to be able to deliver a good user experience all of the time. So you've got to make it easy for a human to intervene at any point if you want to reassure people that they're going to have a quality of user experience throughout that process. And that sounded pretty sensible to me. It, it, it does sound sensible. I wonder... Um, being slightly perverse, if the system then asks, well, which human? It's a good point. Uh, households where you've got multiple people living together, who ends up making the file? Say it's the old argument about you know who's in charge of the remote control, but writ large across all of the smart devices in the home. Well, and, and can you imagine in a, in a traffic system, which, uh, which vehicle decides? I guess uh, easy to, to find where there can be a range of these different uh, user experience issues with all of this stuff. But there is this sense that there's potential here as well, that when we think about what can happen when we make the environment around us that much smarter, there's obviously appetite for that and enthusiasm for it. We can see it in the way people are getting interested in these these smart home systems and in the potential for it uh, in, in the wider sense, you know, in public spaces as well. But it, it makes me think whether or not 
the challenge that people within the user experience community have got is to start to understand what are the ways in which the design process changes and how can we make this viable for users? How can we make it feel human? How can we make it feel like a good experience? And thinking back to um, some of the work that you did in one of the working sessions we had at a previous MEX event around proximity and how people relate to digital devices in their near environment. Were there any principles which came out of that which you think um, could help us to, to deliver these kind of quality of, of user experiences uh, across this, this area of uh, embedded intelligence? Well, Marek, for me, that was a, a fascinating group to work with um, that came up with some really excellent ideas. There, there was probably uh, out of the sort of four or five different things that we, 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 we considered, there, there was one in particular that came out, which was that your physical context shouldn't somehow relate back to your natural gestures, that in designing a system... Uh, you should enable natural gestures to to correspond specifically with that physical context, and we we went on a journey of discovery as as part of that uh, that session, and and we went for a walk to to the British Library, where there is a a uh, large statue of Isaac Newton, and and it's it's quite a nice bit of of uh, technology uh, embedded there, which is a a little purple circle which has various means of triggering some information about Isaac Newton. For example, there's, there's, a, there's a, um, a QR code and, and, and a couple of other things. Now, one of, the, one of the issues that we discovered was that the purple circle was at approximately six and a half feet up off the ground, and the only way to get, on to, to, to get anywhere near it was to climb onto a plinth. And, and the plinth itself says, do not climb on it. Now, obviously, that, that doesn't enable very many natural gestures when you have people jumping up and down trying to, uh, trying to interact with, with, with the sign on a wall. Having passed back there more recently, I know that they have actually, actually in, in fact, moved that purple sign to a level that a small child can reach. So, so that's, that, that's a good thing. But in the meantime, it's interesting to, to think about if you wanted to find out more about Sir Isaac Newton, what is the best way of doing that? And, and having of some sort uh, on your f- that, that you can play through your phone to, to, to have a, a voice that tells you more about it uh, or more about him is, uh, is quite nice. But I wonder whether there are other sorts of ways of interacting between yourself and, and the statue that, that would provide something that feels natural and is also easy. I think it comes down to exactly that you've got to understand the physical context in which people might be engaging with these kind of things and it goes back to the importance of when you're designing experiences like this getting a really deep understanding of the environments in which they're going to be used even down to the nuances of what's the temperature going to be like is it going to be viable for someone to have their hands out in a cold environment for instance interacting with their device to do that kind of thing or as you say just the basic mechanics of height if you put the thing at six and a half feet off the ground it's very visible but no one can reach it Um, so i think with all of these kind of uh, experiences there's going to be this learning period where we have to start understanding what kind of gestural languages, uh, whether it be touch, whether it be new ways, for instance, of sensing hand input or voice input are going to be most appropriate to these very new situations which are going to emerge as we start to get more 
intelligence embedded in the, the physical environment around us. And the reality is we just don't really know what those kind of combinations are going to be like at the moment. And it's going to be a period of experimentation, I think, as we start to think about what do we need beyond what we see on today's devices, where we have become quite accustomed to this language of tap and swipe and pinch to zoom. What are the new kind of gestures we might need for this uh, brave new world of, of embedded intelligence in the environments around us? And that's certainly something that a lot of the TV set companies have been uh, wrestling with for some time. And, and, and of course, there are now certain TVs that will respond to physical gestures like waving your arms in certain ways. The consumer feedback to this is not always uh, very positive because uh, the, the television doesn't always understand what you're trying to do. Um, so, so it is still a challenge to get it to, get it to work properly. But but I think one other thing that's worth drawing out from this is that session was very much on on proximity rather than location, and and the the, the distinction that uh, that I think you and I were trying to draw out there was that while location is is being set in one place in one context, proximity is 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 more to do with your your relationship to a physical place, and how that that relationship alters through through a journey. So as you approach it and then are at it and then depart from it or, or even just pass by it. Th- these were all fundamentally important things. Uh, one of the things that we, we tried to draw out was the importance of anticipating your interaction with that place or point in time, depending on your distance from it and the direction you're moving towards it or away from it. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point because as you say, that relationship and particularly your expectation of how you might interact with that particular physical location is going to vary considerably depending on how far you are from it. I mean, it may be, for instance, that someone listening to this podcast on the other side of the world is interested in getting an understanding of what that audio clip about Isaac Newton in the British Library is all about. But there's no way for them to physically experience going and using that little purple tag you were talking about. But they still have an interest in it. And that's still a piece of digital information which they may want to have access to. But they're going to have a very different relationship with that and someone who casually walks past and notices it and taps it with their phone. You can almost sort of imagine a, a matrix of these different interaction methods uh, and the different levels of information, the different urgencies of information developing where you can start to, you know, if you like, build a series of user journeys which relate to the reality of where people are in relation to an object, how urgent their need is, what their particular context, physical context of interaction is at the time, so that for each piece of digital information like that, the user ends up getting the most appropriate method to to interact with it through the most appropriate device for them at the time. And if we go back to what we were saying earlier about urban planning and, and street signs, there's potentially some way that we interact with street signs in the future that takes into account where that particular person is traveling to or what that person is trying to do at that point in time, whether it's to turn left or park the car, overtake. An interesting one. Um, You know, I think we have to get out of this mindset that things are designed in a static way and they have a single purpose and that they're fixed at a point in time. Increasingly, I think we are going to be called upon to imagine these as being dynamic objects which respond in some way and are much more personal to the viewer and personal to 
that viewer's particular state at that moment in time. Absolutely. So I think a lot of the things we've talked about so far have been, you know, pretty serious in a way. We're talking about, you know, public infrastructure here and what happens in the home if uh, your smart home gets out of control and starts causing all sorts of problems for you. But I I did want to go back to something actually, which is now almost 10 years old, crazily, um, from the mobileuserexperience.com site, our our MEX site, um, where there's a guy called Michael Trudgeon, in 2007, he wrote this article for us called Performative Architecture and Push-Button Ambience. And back then, this is 2007, so the iPhone, for instance, depending on what time of year it was, possibly hadn't even been announced at that point. I think the iPhone was the summer of that year. So this is you know, very much an era of Nokia smartphones and the old uh, Windows Mobile and things like that, and MMS multimedia messaging was a big deal. And he worked on this project at a cinema in Melbourne called Hoyts, where they came up with this idea that you could send an MMS from your phone and it would be translated into very low-res pixel art and it would turn the wall of this cinema into a piece of public display art. And I noticed something when I was doing a bit of looking around for our show and tell, um, which is very similar to this now, but much more modern, called the Dotty Pixel Light Box, which does something on a smaller scale, where it's just a little box of illuminated squares creating pixel art that you can put in your uh, your room at home, and you can do a similar thing where you can uh, push notifications to it, or you can push pictures to it, and it transposes them into this nice uh, you know, low-res pixel art. And, you know, I just wonder whether or not, amid all the sort of seriousness of things like how self-driving cars can help improve uh, our transport and all that sort of thing, um, actually, we might see some of the first examples of good experiences in this area emerge in more playful ways. Yeah, well, I, I wonder whether your home will will start to, to respond to you or try to coax you into a better mood after you've come back from work by selecting the right well, maybe even just writing the correct music to get you into a, into a better frame of mind uh, and, and coordinating the lighting in such a way that it, it, it sort of gradually and gently pulls you up into a, into a sort of more uh, relaxed and, and ready for, for, for sleep sort of state. It's certainly possible. I guess you would have to put a, a degree of trust in the artificial intelligence, you know, not to get that wrong. Otherwise, you can end up being woken up in the morning <laughs> to the, the sounds of the 1812 overture or something. <laughs> I, I know some people like to wake up to trance music as well. Um, not my choice. The, the the ability to be to be playful with these things mustn't be forgotten. I think. I think that there are there are so many opportunities to have more fun with the technologies, and not simply try to think about whether or not your your fridge will will order more milk when it runs out, which is you know frankly rather tedious. Uh, ideas of having some form of you know, pixel art or, or even something that, that takes it further and is a bit more sophisticated that deals with not just light but, you know, your other senses and, and, and delighting your other senses. And whether that's done autonomously or whether that's something that you can control in some sort of way, um, I, I think is a, is, a, is a fascinating opportunity. And imagine if you could actually create a whole new display in, in your friend's home, for example, so that when they arrive, you know, you, you've created a, a mural for them, which has sound and all the rest of it. And I'm, you know, I'm just sort of making it up as I go along here. But uh, I, I think that could be quite, quite delightful as, as, a, as a possibility. Well, if you look at the 
trajectory of some of the hottest areas, if you like, in, in digital industry at the moment. You look at things like consumer messaging and you look at the, uh, broadly speaking, consumerization of digital services where almost all of the significant revenue generating digital services which have emerged have all come first from a consumer facing mindset where I guess companies are taking more account of that idea of being playful with these things, making it feel like a human user experience for people first and foremost, above and beyond some of its more um, serious implications. That tends to be where the most disruptive things are happening. So perhaps that's what we'll see in this space is that to get people beyond that um, initial hesitation around bringing some of these technologies into the physical environment. We need some of those more playful examples where people are able to relate to them in a, a more human way, which you know, ultimately, I guess, is what's at the, the heart of good user experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Marek, I have to say that uh, in, in recent times, I have um, become quite fond of, of emoji to the extent that now all my folders on my uh, Apple phone are named with with an emoji rather than having the the actual word. So so my music folder has has a little saxophone. But where I'm going with this is is imagine that rather than sending someone you know a, a smiley or a little boat or a whatever it happens to be, um, you can actually light up their their space or 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 or, or share an emotion that is both visual and and auditory, um, and who knows what else. Um, uh, and, and and do so much more that is that that really shares the emotion in 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 a, in a big way. When I think back to, I think it was the very first Mex event we did in two thousand five. There was a chap there called Fabio Sergio, who now I believe is a, a creative director at Frog Design, and he gave a talk in which he showed the Nabaz tag. Did you ever come across a Nabaz tag? I don't think I did. No. What is it? So. Picking up on your idea of, of lighting up someone else's space and being able to make things happen in your, your friends' homes, um, this was a translucent plastic rabbit which was connected to the web and could be paired to another translucent plastic rabbit on the other side of the world. And you could make it do, for instance, things like illuminate in different colours, or you could make its ears spin, or you could get it to read out a message in your friend's home, so long as they had given you permission to pair with it. Uh, and it became this almost sort of cult object. This, you've got to remember, was before things like Kickstarter uh, and this idea that you could get these smart hardware projects easily funded. Uh, and it became this real cult thing where for a number of years, there was this community of people who had these objects in their homes and they added all sorts of interesting features, like they were able to connect it up to internet radio and you could connect it to different messaging services. Um, but sadly, I think the, the company ended up uh, pivoting to a, a different area or closing down altogether. But for a while, your dream had come true. You could light up someone else's house and the method was through a translucent plastic rabbit. You missed your opportunity, Alex. That, that is fantastic. You know, if, if the future does bring uh, walls that are, are somehow intelligent and, and, and uh, light up, um, then perhaps that, is, that, that will be the, uh, the future opportunity for me. 
Right. Well, we ought to draw things to a close. Um, but if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things that we have talked about in the show and tell or in the, the wider discussion, uh, then take a look at the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, and we will drop links into all of those for you. So it's been an interesting discussion, Alex. Thanks for taking the time, and I'll look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Mark, it's been a pleasure, and I will need to get myself some translucent plastic rabbits. Up next is my discussion with Patrizia Bertini. Now, Patrizia is a full-time user experience research director within a digital agency, but she's also someone that I'd met in the context of her role as a Lego serious play facilitator. In fact, she came along to our MEX event in March 2015 and ran a fascinating session with the full audience where she both facilitated a discussion around the future of digital experience using her Lego technique, but at the same time explained to the audience, who a lot of whom were user experience professionals themselves, what she was doing and how the methodology was working. And this was probably one of the first times that this dual method of both running a facilitated Lego session, but also explaining how the methodology worked, had been done simultaneously. So it ends up being a pretty interesting conversation. We talk a little bit about Lego Series Play as a facilitation method and why it's appropriate to some of the challenges facing digital industry today. We also get into some of her background and how she arrived at uh, learning this technique and how she applies it in her day job. Uh, And we talk about a, a range of different references and sources, which if you're interested, you can find in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast session. I very much enjoy the discussion. I hope you do too. So here we go. Hi, Patrizia, and welcome. Hello, Marek. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Well, I was struggling a little bit um, when I was thinking about this discussion about the best way to introduce you, because you're someone who has a range of different talents and some quite diverse interests. Um, but how would you describe your day job currently? So I work for Vipro Digital as Director of Research and Insight. And what I do is exactly this. Look around, understand people, observe the trends, observe how people behave, what are the attitudes, what are the current ways of doing things, and imagine how things can be done better. So you end up, I guess, having quite a a broad uh, role in that degree. How does your ideal day play out in a a role like that? What are the parts of that that you personally really enjoy most and look forward to? Uh, The the parts that I enjoy the most are when actually you can create ideas, when actually you start from inside, so perhaps you spend the previous days observing with ethnography, uh, trying to understand uh, the context. And then, uh, as you may know, I'm a big, big fan and supporter of uh, participative design. So when you have that moment where you get the insight you have, you take the user, you have the stakeholders, you have the designers, and you just start thinking in a fun way, in, in a workshop-like uh, experience about, okay, what's next? We know what's out there, but we want to do something different. We want to do something better. We want to change the 
the things to to have an impact and that's probably the, the bits where you actually are just throwing idea and trying to get out with, with a new solution for an old problem or for a new problem or a, or for a future problem. Well, that reminds me actually, perhaps we should go back a, a little bit to when you and I first met, which I think was probably June of 2014. And I guess that was very much our introduction to each other. Um, so I'd heard about this workshop, which was happening at Foolproof, a digital design agency, uh, which is based in my neck of the woods up here in, in Norfolk. Uh, and I heard about this workshop that was going to be run there and that it was going to be using this technique, Lego Serious Play, to facilitate it, and that you were going to be running this workshop. And I've got to admit, I went along because I was a total skeptic about this kind of methodology. I was thinking to myself, how on earth is this person going to use Lego to facilitate a room full of people? Not just a room full of anyone, I suppose, a room full of experienced designers who themselves were all uh, experienced at, at running different sessions as well. And yet I came away from that amazed by what you managed to achieve in that participative way that you're describing with the people in that room. But tell me, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind when you are coming into that session, say, at Foolproof that I was part of, or when you first go into a room full of people that you've not met before with your box of, of Lego to do this facilitation technique, and you don't know who's going to be there, you don't know how you're going to get them to participate? What's going through your mind at that stage? Well, it's about all about curiosity. So getting into the room, knowing that all that you want is to have fun. Because having fun is the best way to free your creativity and actually leave all the pressure, stress, anxiety you have at work and be fully creative. So when I step in and when I start a workshop, a Lego series play workshop for me, it's all about, okay, let's forget about the world outside. I don't care what's happening in your daily life. We are here for a few hours where all we want to focus is what is possible let's play with imagination let's explore where we can go and let's be open and fun and trying to create absolutely the most creative constructive and playful environment because that's that's all we need to help creativity and to generate ideas and what i need to do is to make sure that i can kind of identify people's hidden thoughts because I know a lot of people like yourself are absolutely skeptical. They say, what the hell? My kid is playing with Lego. I'm a serious professional. I, I don't play. But actually, the opposite of play is not work. It's depression. Because play is all about engagement. It's all about letting yourself go and giving room to your ideas and to the potential that you have. And it's about playing safe, trying new things in a safe environment. And this is what I try to build, transmit, in order to carry out the workshop, in order to engage with people, and in order to generate idea altogether and have fun. And how did you first come across the Lego Serious Play methodology yourself? Well, uh, in 2009, I was actually doing my PhD at LSE here in London. And I was studying all these traditional, amazing methods, you know, uh, traditional studies, focus group, interviews, you name it. 
And I was just questioning, there should be a different way to understand how people build their ideas, how people negotiate ideas. I mean, uh, I don't want to be academic and boring, but the whole idea of reality from a constructivist perspective is all about we have all to agree on something for something to exist. So a £10 banknote is just paper, unless we all agree as a society that that actually has an economic value and what is an economic value. So, and this is how actually I came across a book from Dave Gauntlet, uh, Creative Exploration, and it was about Lego Series Play. I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And this is how it started. I just wanted to try something new because if you want to find out something new, you have to try out something new. You won't get anything new if you keep doing what you did before. So tell me, what are the actual rules and methods which govern the way that you run a Lego Serious Play session? Social constructionism, the fact that actually we learn more when we do things. So everything started with Papert in the 70s, the man who actually started teaching maths with computers and basically said we learn much more by doing than anything else. So the engagement of the body and the practice, it's material thinking uh, as it's called. So that's a key part then that you must actually be physically engaged in the activity to help free the mind, as it were. Exactly, because you have to think that around 70-80% of the connections of our hands are directly related to, to the brain. So if we stimulate our hands, we engage the brain simultaneously, but we engage it in a different level. Because it's not the conscious one, it's where the unconscious happen. And this is when you basically start connecting things. And this is when actually ideas happen. I mean, you want, I mean, tell me how many times did you had a brilliant idea while you were sitting at your desk writing your paper or an email or something. That's not when things happen. You have to stimulate the subconscious brain. And doing things, it's, it's a way of stimulating that part of uh, our cognition. And it's also that our body, it's strictly connected to our cognition in the senses that, you know, there are these theories that's been around for kind of 10 years called embodied cognition. And there are lots of studies about how actually our physical perception affects the way we think and perceive. So the fact that I have a different body from anyone else makes me perceive the reality and makes my the, my way of thinking different. I mean, yesterday I was reading an amazing paper, just to prove this point, about how people who actually have Botox injection, after the Botox injection, have difficulties in understanding facial expressions. How interesting. So they're having difficulty understanding the, the expressions of others because their expressions themselves have changed. Exactly. So there's absolutely a very, very, very strict connection between how we do our body, what we do with our body, and how we perceive reality. And at the same time, if you think about the way we speak and we talk, we always use metaphors because we can't talk about abstract concepts unless we refer to something that we experience, we know, or, or we can relate to. So let's say... If we talk about something good or something positive, there's always something that it's up. Uh, so it's uh, 
on a higher level. Hell is always down, paradise is always in the sky, I'm uh, over the moon, be over the top, that's all being high because we need this kind of relating to something physical uh, when we talk about emotions. We, we can't talk about emotions in, in other ways. And when we talk about love or sentiment, we use a lot of metaphors about where are we going, where is this relation going, uh, or um, uh, we are at a crossroad. I mean, these are all journey-related metaphors, because love is a journey. So if those um, physical elements of the, uh, the thought process and making that physical connection uh, are very important to the methodology, do you have a, a set uh, a set of exercises which you get started with with each of the workshops that you do, or can that vary depending on the situation? I mean, how do you get people to start getting active and, and getting involved so that you can start that process of, of freeing up their, their mind to think in more abstract ways? Exactly, you got to the point, Marek, because what you have to do is exactly have a warm-up phase because we get to, we have to learn and teach people how basically to think on a metaphorical level. So leave reality. We are not building objective representations of something, of reality. We are building ideas. So there are a lot of different exercises. Uh, some are classics, some are creative ones that actually, depending on the goal of the workshop, uh, as a facilitator, I just pick and decide which are the good ones to help me to get everyone on the same page, engage everyone and let everyone to, to be familiar with how to build models with Lego, being familiar that every Lego, Lego model built is ugly, so it's not about the aesthetic value, it's about the stories that the whole model can tell us about what we are going to talk about. So what I recall from the session that I took part in with you was that you were very strict about the point that you must always talk in relation to the model that you have created from Lego rather than in any other context when you're asking people questions uh, about what they've done. Why do you choose that method? Why, why do you only limit people to talking about the model? Uh... It's, there are different reasons. The first one is because the model is an extension of the person. I mean, you may remind, recall that actually I destroyed some models and you felt dis absolutely distressed and uh, disappointed by me being rude and destroying models. Uh, the model is an extension of what you think, who you are, and your response to the challenge that I posed. So there's a physical attachment and a cognitive attachment to the model and that allows me to delve into the topic without you noticing how much you are disclosing. At the same time I ask people not to always to relate to the model because in that way we can avoid conflict. So uh, no one will ever interact directly with the person. They will always interact through the model. And this means that I'm not attacking you. I'm asking questions and I'm questioning your model, not you as a person. And that helps a lot, negotiation, facilitation, interaction, especially when you are in a quite tense environment where people are not really willing to open up themselves. 
Well, that was one of the things which really struck me and I guess converted me from being a skeptic of the methodology into being sufficiently impressed that we then actually went on to invite you to come and participate at our MEX event the following year. And we did a, a whole session around that was how it helped to break down those barriers between people, which anyone who has conducted any kind of user research or facilitation will know how difficult it can be to go from that moment of having a group of people often who don't know each other or perhaps who work together with each other in a very particular way each day to getting a free-flowing conversation going. And it was quite remarkable how quickly you managed to achieve that through those different methods. Now, talk to me a little bit about how uh, that then plays into the kind of work that you're doing day-to-day around user research within digital. Where are the areas that you find that kind of method where you can get people to start thinking in a more abstract way and you can get them to participate perhaps more fully than they would do otherwise? Are there particular areas of digital experience design where you feel that is most relevant and most useful to you personally? Well, I think that experience is just experience. I mean, there's no digital experience in the digital economy. It's always about how people perceive reality. And, you know, being able to think in a different way, uh, being able to tell stories because it's all about storytelling it's the only way where we can actually delve into people's mind frames mindsets and get an understanding of where they are in their experience what are i can't say needs because at the end of the day all the needs are covered but what are those bits that actually could delight people and improve their experience improve the way they do things that they have to do or they want to do. Uh, Sometimes you don't have the choice. So this is very useful to generate ideas, but at the same time to explore where are the opportunities. Let's say we want to understand a banking, a financial service. We want to understand how people are experiencing that. And you, you can't go and ask people, well, how is your banking experience today? How was it? you will get those kind of very bland results like, yes, it was good, it was fairly good. I mean, it's it's all kind of empty. It doesn't give you data material to think and to imagine what, where are the opportunities. But if you ask people to build a model of their experience with the banking and tell the story, and then you, can, you start asking, you know, okay, tell me a little bit about that, the red brick that you put there. What is that? What if I take out the blue brick? What happens to your experience? And that's when you get amazing stories and that's where you get inspiration. And that's when these kind of approaches can be absolutely... I mean, they, they are key between a successful, innov- innovative idea and, yeah, just incremental innovation. Well, it's one of the oldest cliches, I guess, in user research is that it's the things which the users aren't telling you, which often lead to the biggest breakthroughs. And I think what I've seen in these kind of workshops that you've run, both the one that I took part in at Foolproof and the one that we did at our MEX event, uh, was how you got people to start to open up and talk about some of those things that you wouldn't normally get to hear because they're able to do so, as you say, in relation to the, the Lego models, which you'd had them build. And it started to reveal some of those underlying things which often get lost when you just have a discussion purely at a functional level and you start to get into the abstract. But it also makes me think whether or not 
these things are becoming more appropriate and relevant currently because as a whole, when you think about where digital industry is going, we seem to be moving from a phase where there were a series of quite straightforward functional leaps to be made. If you think about something like, say, the line of progression from the first telephones through to something like the iPhone, you can actually trace a relatively reliable path between those different objects. But as people who work in digital industry get challenged to make the next set of big abstract leaps into the future, it becomes harder and harder to do that in a user-centered way because you're having to push people to think about things which perhaps the average person can't really conceive of yet. And a methodology like this maybe becomes more appropriate because you can help people to make those kind of abstract leaps without even realizing necessarily that that's what they're doing. But how do you see the method playing into these kind of experiences, which I guess are becoming uh, more and more of the day-to-day of the work that people in digital experience design are doing, where you're not just thinking about one particular product experience, but you're thinking about a product experience which spans maybe multiple different touch points. So it's no longer about what's happening within the confines of, say, an app running on a single smartphone, but actually it's about a digital service which spans, say, a smartphone and sensors which are embedded in the physical environment and a smartwatch and maybe a big screen, and they're all connected and working together. Do you think that these kind of methods where you can get people to think in that abstract way uh, are well suited to that next challenge of experience design? Well, I think that they are the key. I mean, I keep saying in the experience economy, creating experiences and engaging in a participative, creative way with the users is the key. Uh, because, I mean, the days where you just tested a prototype to, to make sure that it was usable, accessible, they are gone. I mean, those are basic practices. UX is not about that anymore. It's much more about strategy. It's about how you think, about the relationship between the brand, the application, the user, the technology. It's all about understanding the context where we are and the opportunities, where we can go. And this is something that requires a different way of thinking, a different way of looking at the present to imagine the future. And this kind of method actually allows you to explore the opportunity space because they don't ask uh, and they don't focus on the question. I I always talk about tangent questions when I I do interviews at work or uh, I run a test. Because if you ask a direct question, you bias the result immediately. If I ask you, uh, have you eaten cereals today? You will know that I want to know if you have eaten cereals and you will modulate your answer around that. Perhaps you also had an apple, but you won't tell me because that was not my question. And I'm missing out the information that you had an apple because you were focusing on the cereal. So it's always about how you frame the question and how the broader the question, the more insights you get to understand and to get those clues that allows you to move into the future space. And the future space, as you said, it's about a connected ecosystem where objects will talk to each other. And this is a huge opportunity, but at the same time, it's a huge threat because it's amazing to think that uh, my smartphone will be able to talk to my refrigerator. Uh, amazing to think that uh, smartphone talk to TV or 
lightning systems or anything. But this goes with a price tag that actually is data. I mean, there was this article that uh, I was reading yesterday about the Internet of Me, where everything should be personalized and built around the user, the person. So it's not about the technology and the devices. It's about me. What do I want? When I want it? How do I get it? it it's not about what technology is providing it to me. The problem is that these cost data. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think... Uh, as we start to get into those kind of digital experiences, which are that much closer to integrating with our overall lives, and they're no longer discrete objects that we can close the lid of our laptop, or we can switch off our phone and put it to one side, as they become things which are pervasive around us, it's going to become that much more important to understand all of those really fine nuances about who people are, why they behave the way they do, and how that uh, influences the uh, the way in which they want these products to integrate into their lives. And there is a sense, I think, among people who work in digital at the moment that we need to push for additional research methods which allow us to really get that much deeper understanding, that much more nuanced understanding of, of user behavior, but also about how we translate that into things which actually make us better at making effective design decisions about where the product experience goes and how we develop that. So when you think about these kind of methodologies, where do you see it sitting within the overall product design and and iteration process? Is this something typically which you'd see happening at quite an early stage? Is this something which you think needs to happen throughout the process in a, a circular sort of way? When do you think it's at its most effective? Well, you know, the first piece is always about understanding, okay, what are the opportunities, the threat, the situation? And it's essential to, to engage uh, the user with some participative and creative design uh, workshops and uh, methodologies like this that allows us to explore the opportunity space at an early stage so that actually we can focus and we can validate uh, hypotheses and we can generate some, some good creative and innovative thing. And then these kind of workshops can also be repeated, you know, if you want to refine some ideas. So let's say you use the first workshop or set of workshops because perhaps you want to have different workshops with different users, uh, depending how you design your research. Uh, you use the first set of uh, workshops to understand the space, the macro needs, the macro opportunities, where we can go, what are the meaningful bits, what is missing in the experience today, where can we go? And then when you reach an idea of, okay, this is the space, this is the direction, you can start develop some early prototype or some early ideas and concept and then engage again people in workshops and try to understand if you are going into the right direction and narrow down the scope so that you make sure you are keeping ahead of what people is expecting from the industry, from the market. Uh, you're working with them to deliver something that will be new and helpful and meaningful in a decent uh, amount of time. And this will save a lot of time. Now, I'm guessing that you're adept at a a range of different research methods. Obviously, Lego Serious Play is something which uh, you and I have done together and uh, is one of the the reasons why uh, we had this interview. But uh, do you think it's something which is suited to 
all stages of the process or are there times when you, when you're doing this in your day job, think actually there's a, a different kind of research method that I need to employ? How do you make that decision personally? Well, uh, Lego Series Play is great to generate ideas, narrow down and prioritize. Then there are different kind of methods depending on what do you want to generate. So in some, um, I have a kind of uh, 36, 38 different methods that I use and play with. And I play with them and mix them and generate new methods out of them, depending on, you know, the variables are how much time do I have, who are attending the workshop, so do I have users, stakeholders, designers, researchers, uh, and basically where I am with the stage. Uh, of the development so sometimes I just need some something very quick so I use write storming techniques or I use uh, techniques that use stories and metaphors but rather than using Legos which are kind of a little bit time-consuming using collage or visual explorations and different methods it's all about understanding why you are doing and having clear in mind what is the information that will help you what are the insights that you and your team need to develop and to go in the right direction and the Lego series play methodology itself, is that something which has evolved since it was first introduced? Uh, is it something which is always changing or is that fairly established and set in stone as to how that's done now? Lego series play has evolved enormously. I mean, when when it started, there were, I think, four, five or six applications. Now there are seven applications. But what is absolutely amazing in the method is that the community is growing very 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 fast and there are applications in every field you can imagine from um, psychology marketing uh, academia uh, IT uh, very very different very very broad and it's constantly evolving so the community is literally exploiting the potential of storytelling and uh, the potential of the breaks in every single direction. And facilitators, they, they have a meeting once a year in Billund in Denmark, and every year is pure inspiration because for some reason, Lego Series Play facilitator, in the majority of the cases, are absolutely brilliant creative minds. Well, it must have been interesting for you to get involved with the methodology at a relatively early stage and, and see how it's evolved. Now, did that coincide with the time at which you started to think of yourself as a user experience practitioner, or did your interest in user experience predate your interest in, in Lego Series Play? I know, I started back in 2000, so it was all about usability at that time, and I went all the way from usability, human-computer interaction, accessibility, user experience, customer experience. Uh, and when first I started playing with Lego, I wasn't relating it to, to, to the whole UX and designing experiences. It was about understanding people. But at the end of the day, UX is not about understanding people. And if you can do that, having fun and having people having fun, I mean, that's a win-win. Well, of course, you say you started using the Lego serious play methodology, um, but presumably you must have had an interest in Lego in the first place. I mean, was this something that you played with as a child? Is that where your, your first exposure to Lego happened? 
No, I, 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 I have to confess that the truth is my father dreamt to have an architect in the family and he hoped I was the one who actually could became the architect in the family. So he both made tons of Legos when I was a kid and I hated it. I confess it. And then I find out that I can play Lego in a different way and I never became an architect. <laughs> it's interesting that isn't it it's often the things which our parents are most keen on us doing in our lives that end up being those that are sort of resisted but then they end up coming back later in, in unexpected ways and those things stick with you for life in some form or other absolutely my father still loves as well i bought so many legos hoping that you get into architecture and now you got in playing lego but not an architect that's life <laughs> it's funny how life works out like that but going back to the the business about usability and, and then going on to what we now know as user experience and a broader idea of, of customer experience. Was there a moment at which you consciously took a decision that this space of understanding users and particularly in relation to digital became something which you, you consciously realized that was what you were going to do in your career? Well, there, there was actually a aha moment in my life. I think it was when I was writing my master thesis in 1999 and I brought home my laptop. It was early days and all to Shiba, you got the picture. And I remember my father, he, he actually was a contractor, so this is why he, he expected me to be um, an architect. So not a digital person at all. So I showed him my, my laptop and showed him the mouse, how to use the mouse, how the mouse actually affected the cursor on the screen. And I was just showing how things were working. And for me, it was absolutely natural. Of course, I was 23, 24 years old, absolutely super excited by technology. And my father, absolutely, uh, after my explanation, he just took the mouse. And to make the course cursor moving upwards, he literally lifted the mouse. And that was, okay, I just explained, I show him. But that's not enough. And at the same time, I had some friends with some disabilities. And that's how I started thinking about accessibility and how many things I could do if only, you know, 1999, 2000, early services could actually be used by them because they couldn't go to the bank. What if they could interact through a computer? So all these kind of things were really uh, the basis of why I decided to move into, into the industry and why I focused quite a lot and I spend a lot of time, especially with elderly and disabled, because I strongly believe that technology has the power to bring the information society and the advantages of the information society to everyone. It's a strong democratic tool if we use technology and we design products and services in the right way. So it's us deciding what we want to share and who we want to include in what we do. Well, it's a good point. I mean, I think often when you're working day to day in user experience, naturally you become quite accustomed to focusing in on the problems because a big part of the job as a user experience practitioner is to identify where there are issues and problems and how you can solve those. Um, but it's also, I guess, an opportunity to think about how, if and when we do solve those problems, it can make a real difference to people's lives and actually contribute something meaningful back into the world. 
I mean, is there a particular area when you think about the future and the kind of role that some of these emerging technologies could play in it really fills you with hope for how it can achieve that kind of difference? Well, honestly, I think it could be everywhere. Everything can have a huge impact. I mean, uh, video technologies could help deaf communication. Uh, audio technology can help uh, and support blind people or sight-impaired people. It's it's not, uh, or people that actually are have different conditions or elderly. I'm just thinking, I'm getting old. How will I cope with all this technology? I mean, everything is evolving so fast. And I'm just realizing, I'm start. I'm a, someone that's not a digital native. I'm Generation X. And my questions and my fear is, things are changing so fast. And I have absolutely no clue when I will be old and you know, arthritis will come and who knows what will come and how I will be, how will technology. And I just hope that I will have the opportunity to interact because what keeps people alive and what actually stimulates people is interaction with other people and the connection. So not the Facebook-like connection where we are all friends but only online and we don't say hi on the street but real meaningful connection where you have a conversation, how this will evolve, how relationship will evolve. That's probably my biggest question. Well, I think it's a, a very good one to keep in mind as we start to think about how we evolve these methods and how we can ensure that we uh, in, make these technological developments as relevant as possible to as many people as possible. And it was certainly one of the things which I took away from the session that you ran for us at MEX last year, which was one of the real uh, memorable ones for me over the years that we've been doing MEX, because you did manage to achieve that within a, quite a large group of people, a hundred or so in the room, getting everyone engaged and interacting with each other at the start of uh, quite an early morning, and yet you had them all enthused and participating in the discussion, which was quite a thing in itself. So I'm really glad we've been able to talk a little bit more about the methodologies that you've been working on, Patricia. And it's been a fascinating conversation. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for, for having me and for, for, for letting me chatting and just sharing some thoughts and ideas. We finished this episode with a user story part of an ongoing series where we look at the weird, wonderful, and surprising ways that people use technology in the real world. You can find an archive of other user stories at mobileuserexperience.com. Today's is entitled Little Faces, Big Screens. I suspect we've probably all been on a train a little bit like this one. It's about 5pm on a weekday, King's Cross Station in London, and the train is absolutely packed. You know it's going to be standing room only all the way to the end of the line, which will be about an hour and a half, hour and three quarter journey for most people. And of course, it being winter, the train company has decided to crank the heating up to max. So you might say that you've got a train full of people who and maybe not wildly looking forward to the journey ahead. 
Most of them have their heads buried in iPhones or iPads or trying to cram a laptop onto their knees and get some work done. And just as the train is about to leave, I look over and a couple has rushed on at the last minute with their young child. I'd guess she was about four or five years old. Now, unfortunately, mum and dad can't get a seat together. So the young girl ends up sitting with dad and stands between his legs, facing forward, looking at the seat in front of her where there's a little tray table. And as soon as they're settled down, he hands her his iPhone, an iPhone 6, white and silver, and she pulls down the tray table in front and props it up. Now, because she's only about three foot high herself, she ends up basically at eye level with this iPhone 6, which she's got propped up against the chair in front. And she goes straight in to what she wants to watch, which turns out to be an episode of Thomas the Tank Engine, as far as I could tell. And she's instantly absorbed. Her face is about six inches from the screen. So at that distance, it ends up essentially filling her whole vision. And she wiles away the entire rest of the journey, quite content, watching these trains going round and round in the cartoon. This wasn't even an iPhone 6 Plus. This was the standard size iPhone 6, but for her, it represented the big screen in front of her eyes. And it got me thinking, what might we infer from this in terms of a set of behaviours relating to the way we consume content in the digital environment? And of course, the first thing which struck me is it really doesn't matter how big the screen is, it's how close you are to it. And this is never more true these days than with these incredibly pixel-dense screens that we have as the resolution gets better and better that you can see such incredible detail on these screens. And I suppose it's taken to its extreme with things like VR headsets, where you can now slot in your smartphone and it becomes a high resolution display right in front of your eyes. And the pixel density is sufficient that you can do some very interesting things with virtual reality. We're seeing Samsung doing it with their Gear VR. And there's also the kind of DIY homemade option that we're seeing from Google, their Google Cardboard, which I believe uh, this week in uh, January 2016, they just um, announced that they have actually shipped 5 million of these Google Cardboards. It also made me think about the relationship that children of that age are going to have with the TV as the primary screen in their lives. Now, they're going to grow up without any notion that the TV was once the primary screen for most people, in contrast to her dad, say, who always would have understood new screens when they arrived, be they smartphone screens or tablet screens, in the context of how they related to the existing dominance of the TV in his life. That generation of that little girl is going to have no sense of that whatsoever. Now, this, of course, was her dad's iPhone that she was using. But it also got me thinking, well, if she's so adept at using this and she's so comfortable watching it for extended periods of time, what's the age and how might that change over time 
at which it's going to be appropriate for her to take charge of her own screen, rather than her parents acting as the gatekeepers to the screens that they keep in their pockets. Now, she's also part of a generation which is going to grow up with an implicit understanding that a screen is not just something through which she consumes, but it's something which she can interact with too, that these aren't passive devices. If you think about the generations that have come before, accustomed to the idea of a screen being something in the corner of the room which you simply watch, if this is the dominant screen in her life, she's going to be very aware that it's also something that you can interact with either after you've watched the thing or perhaps even during the watching of a program. And as the train pulled into the final station on the line and Dad put away the iPhone, not without a degree of protest from the young girl, I should say, I was left with the feeling that what we're seeing here was the start of a series of very different behaviours in relation to media compared to the generations which have come before. And that we're probably not going to see the full effects of this until that generation is in a position to start making purchasing choices of their own to do with the screens that they buy, to do with the media that they consume. And that actually we're going to be dealing with a very different environment and a very different set of user experience expectations compared to those who have come before. And that's it for this edition of Next Design Talk. Don't forget, you can find links to everything we talked about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. You can subscribe for future editions by searching for Mex Design Talk in your favorite podcast player, or you can find a manual link to the RSS feed in those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. Please also get in touch with your feedback. We are at MexFeed on Twitter and would love to hear your thoughts on this edition. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. A special word of thanks on this very first edition of Mex Design Talk to Steve Litchfield of the Phone Show podcast, who provided extremely helpful advice in setting up a podcast, and to Duke Deck, whose artificial intelligence engine created the music for this podcast.